0: Okay, it is that time when I say, who's ready? It's so Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-14, and I'm looking for anybody who's been memorizing it and ready to go. Don't rush. Don't come up here. Right. Anybody? Nobody? Not yet, right? Okay, so we're saying it together. Ephesians 1... 3 through 14, if you're following in your little book, you may. If I mess you up, keep going. All right? I mess up on the same line every single time. And I don't know why, but I do that. So, let's try it. You ready? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory." Any question marks in that passage you just quoted? Did you see ever in these words that he might do this? All of these things are realities that we are looking at here today. The reality of what Christ has done for us. These blessings just keep adding up. And it's a wonderful passage, isn't it? I hope you're... If you're not able to, and maybe you don't uh, choose to memorize these passages, I pray that you go to it often, just to reinforce over and over and over again how much the Lord loves you and what He's done for you. It's an amazing thing to study. We're going into it today. is some pretty fascinating sections of this passage. So, uh, let's ask the Lord's help before we even begin. Lord, we sit right at your feet right now, submitting to your word, asking you to teach us, to change us. If we're walking down some path we shouldn't, turn us around. If there's something we've never heard before, teach us, Lord. Edify us, build us up. If there's some things within us that are not pleasing to you, point those out. Correct us with your word. But change us, Lord, as we sit and listen today, as we have your word open up in front of us right now. It is a life-changing book that you've given to us. And add to that the Holy Spirit within us, and incredible things are happening because we're being shaped into the image of Christ. So as we submit to your word today, Lord, we come before you with thankful hearts. So glad we have this time. So glad we have your word. And this opportunity, pray, Lord, that you are blessed and use it in our lives and change us for the time we spend here together with you. In Jesus' name, amen. As a youngster growing up in Portage, Indiana, it was right on the bottom of Lake Michigan, if you ever try to figure out where would that be. You find the state of Indiana and you, you see Lake Michigan at the very top northwest corner. We were right at the bottom of that, within a mile of the lake. And so, uh, growing up in that area, it was awful cold. That's why I couldn't wait to move to a warmer climate. (laughs) But also, we had a, a song we sang in church growing up. It was a very common song for us to sing. The words started, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. In that bright land where we'll never grow old. Isn't that nice sounding? And someday yonder... I will never more wander, but walk the streets that are pure as gold. That was one of the few songs in our hymn book that I memorized on playing on an organ. I could play it on the piano. I'm not going to do that or scare you to death. <laughs> the reason was, I didn't memorize it to play it so people could sing to it. I memorized it to see how fast I could play it. Because in my childish mind, I was going to... Challenge the pianist at the church to see who could play it fastest. And that's all it was. <laughs> and so you probably couldn't hardly recognize it by the speed I go through that. But I think of the words today, this phrase. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And I ask this question, is this really what I'm seeking when I go to heaven? Is this really what it's all about? You know, most of the descriptions of heaven, if you've probably noticed this before, most of them are stated in the negative. Most of the descriptions, by the way, that we read of, of our future home, are descriptions of a place called the New Jerusalem. It's a city. Very little is actually said about the present heavens that we talk about all the time. The present heavens, uh, we know that there's a throne there. The throne of God is there, and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of his Father. We know that. We've seen that in Scripture. We've also read that there is a temple there. If you read through the book of Hebrews, especially, you'll find the fact that there is a temple there. It is the true temple. The tabernacle was just a copy of it that God had given to Moses to have made. But the original is up in heaven. And according to Revelation, there's even an emerald rainbow over the throne. i always love that little phrase, and it's hardly seen because we read through the passages so fast, but I can't wait to get up there and see that rainbow. I think that's going to be so cool, an emerald rainbow. And that's what Scripture says. Besides all those, uh, the very few chapters, the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, describes the new heavens. And the new earth and the city of Jerusalem somehow suspended between the two. We can't fully grasp that because we haven't seen it yet. It hasn't been made yet. In that description we find no more night. No more sorrows. No more pain. No more tears. No more sin. Praise the Lord. No more death no more sun no more seas a lot of these no mores that doesn't exist anymore but that mansion that we think about you find something like that if you're going to john chapter 14 especially in verse number 2 behold jesus says i go to prepare a place for you. That's the New American Standard version. But most of us grew up with a King James rendition of that. And it's, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you I'd go to prepare a place for you. That word mansion kind of sticks out there. But you know, it comes with a lot of speculation and a lot of assumptions and a lot of imagination. We might picture, and I don't know how you picture that, but you might picture it as some sort of colonial mansion in New England. Or maybe you picture it more like the plantation mansions you could run into in Georgia. Or maybe you're thinking of a mansion in Malibu. Or maybe you go across the pond, and you think about the mansions you see in Europe and England and other places like that. And you think... uh, That's what a mansion looks like to me. Some believe that the size of your mansion is based on the rewards you receive for your service down here. They believe some people will have larger mansions and some people will have little mansions. There are some people who think that the more you do, the closer your mansion will be to the throne of Christ and the less you do, the further away it will be in the city. Within the mansion, I suppose, I'm only guessing here, you're supposed to rest. After all, you pick up your harp, you sit down, maybe you say, no, I need to go for a walk down Holly Hallelujah Boulevard, right? I've got to walk around, I've had people talk about the flower beds they're going to keep in heaven, and, uh, I've seen people talk about how they're going to just sit for hours and visit with grandma or grandpa, who's gone on before them. I've seen a lot of things, heard a lot of things like that. If you ask Tavia in The Fiddler on the Roof, he had one thing he wanted more than anything else. And he sang it in his song, If I Were a Rich Man. He says, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall And I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men several hours every day, and that would be the sweetest thing of all. Is that what it would be like when we get there? Have a good talk with Nahum. I suggest read his book first. Maybe you think, well, we're gonna, we're gonna have all this time to sit around and talk and, but I want to ask you this. If the mansion is what you seek. I read words this week, and this is what it said. The heavenly dwellings are the goal of salvation. I read that in a commentary, and I had to think about that for a minute. I'd like to ask those words, because these are significant sayings. The goal of salvation is the heavenly dwellings. Is that what we live for? Is that what it's all about? Just so I could get there and have my mansion and enjoy that? What, What if I told you in John chapter 14 that the word Jesus uses for dwelling places or mansions was actually a temporary word? A place, literally, where you halt. On a journey. A place to stay. Much like. And I did this in my book. Much like Motel 6. Uh, I know you're saying. Who'd want to just think of heaven as Motel 6. Well they'll keep the lights on for you. But. uh, Surely you don't plan your vacations like. I wonder where the best western is that we can go to. (laughs) We usually have a destination. And the hotels Or just along the way, right? That's how we generally think this through. I'm not trying to minimize anything that Christ has been preparing for us. I hope you understand that. Everything he does is good. It's excellent. Everything is. Yet he is also very accurate in his terminology. He knows full well that the present heaven is temporary. It is temporary. How do I know that? Because Scripture says it's going to be destroyed by fire. Surprised? It says that it's going to be replaced with the perfect, the permanent heaven and earth. It says that. You can find those kind of passages, even though I know some scholars disagree with me on this, but 2 Peter 3, Isaiah 65, 66. You can go into the book of Revelation at the very end there, the last couple of chapters. You can find all the evidence in there that it says it is not a refurbished heaven and earth. He's he's not going to take all this into a shop and give it a good polish. And somehow fix it up a little bit so it's as good as new. What I'm trying to say to you is this. If your hope is anchored only to your mansion, you better get fire insurance. Because it's not going to last. There's something else to this eternal life than just a mansion. I spent a little while on that on purpose this morning. Because our word that we studied today is the word air. H E I R. Air. And even with that word, we have assumptions of what it's all about and what are the good things that come with it. Romans 8 starts this way in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, actually sense is a better word there, since we are children, we are heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow or joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with him. Most people in reading that passage do not like that last phrase. Oh, they love the air idea and being a joint heir. That sounds great too. But suddenly it says, if indeed we suffer with him, and we say, wait a minute, <laughs> we don't like that part of the verse. Who does? Suffering. But it says, if we indeed suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. A fellow heir, a joint heir, each one receiving 100% of the inheritance. They're not splitting it 50-50. It's 100% for both. And you know very well the way we think in our world today that generally the inheritance comes to you because of the will of somebody who has died. Obviously, that doesn't work as children of God if God is our Father. (laughs) That doesn't work in the definition because God's not going to die. But our clue to what that inheritance is all about in Romans 8 is found in that last verse that I read. We suffer with Him That is Christ, who, by the way, we have joint heirship with. We are glorified with Him. And that's Christ, with whom we share 100% of the inheritance. We suffer with Him. We are glorified with Him. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, I set that before you just as we start into this little section Right at the end of verse number 10, or maybe for you it might start in verse number 11. The inheritance we are speaking of this morning is set in the same fashion of what we've been learning. In Ephesians 1, we are studying our identity in Christ. We find in the passage that we have studied so far that we are blessed. True? True. Yes, we are blessed people. We are chosen. We are holy. <laughs> I know some of you say, I still can't get over that one. We are blameless. That's what it says. We wear those titles. It says we are predestined, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven. We are informed. That was last time. All of these labels we have talked about are those that you wear as a believer because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. They are all given to you in Him. And if you look through the passage, you'll see it all over the place. In Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. Purchased by His blood, not by our deeds. Granted, according to his merit, not ours, nothing earned here, nothing at risk of losing either. Because if they're given to you by God, they are protected by God. And we're going to get into the last verse that's coming up soon, and you'll see it. The inheritance that we speak of this morning is of that same fashion. What is that? It's a label you wear. You're an heir. It's because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It is given to you in Him. Purchased by His blood, not by our deeds. We didn't earn this. It's granted according to His merit. Not our merit. Nothing even, folks is at risk of being lost here. For it is given by God, and it is protected by God. Now, if any of that is a surprise to you, you are in for a much bigger surprise with the rest of our study. (laughs) Verse 10, maybe, or starting in verse 11, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Oh, this is great. You ready? Basic sentence structure. We have obtained an inheritance. If you're reading an NIV here this morning, you would say, I didn't see that word. You would see the word chosen. Chosen. But that's the word that's in the text itself. You have been given an inheritance. The Greek word means that you've been assigned something. You've been allotted something. You have secured a portion it's been secured for you. Because it's a passive verb, to tell the truth. That means somebody else did it for you. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. It's also, by the way, and I love doing this, but I dig out the words and I study them through and I find these things. I just have to share them with you because I think there's power in the words. It's also in what we call the heiress tense. It's completely done already. It's already done. Do you hear this? You're not working your way toward your inheritance. You're not working for enhancing your inheritance. You don't have anything to do with it. (laughs) He does. He did it. It's finished. Just like your forgiveness... Just like your redemption, just like the fact he chose you and adopted you and all these other things. How much of that did you do? Nothing. This is also what he's done for you. And so you're not working on this right now, you're not investing in this right now. It has been done for you just as all the other labels you wear in Christ. It's done. It's done. Don't confuse this with rewards. Right? There's a reward ceremony. We're talking about that sometime else. Come to Sunday school. We're really into it. Right? You probably could hear us the rest of the building over there. We were just enjoying our study of rewards this morning. But uh, this is not about rewards. This is about. This isn't about an inheritance. Notice something interesting. It says, "We." We, in this passage. I think that's rather interesting. We have obtained an inheritance. You say, well, what's the big deal of that? (laughs) We have been assigned a portion. There is no differentiating here between those who have more and those who have less. This isn't a competition. Who gets the better mansion? Or the one closer to the throne? Yesterday was kind of a fun day. Um, I don't know if you're one that likes to sit and watch the Kentucky Derby and things like that. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I just watch I don't bet on it, promise. I don't do it. But I did pick the winner before he ran. I should have. But that's a different story. Um, but uh, I enjoy watching that, and I've been watching that through it. I thought it was kind of interesting because... The winning horse was named Mage, M-A-G-E. Wasn't supposed to win. He did. It was really quite a fascinating run. But what was interesting was that as most horses have an owner and a trainer, this one had a trainer and it had over 380 owners. Because a group got together and invested together and some of them paid $50 for the horse. And some paid thousands of dollars for the horse. But they all went in together to purchase this horse and throw it in this race. It's the third race it ever ran in its life. And it won this race. How many of the 380 were winners? Every one of them. didn't matter how much they invested in it. They all came out as winners. Their horse won. Similarly... When you talk about this inheritance, we have obtained. He's not saying you have more than me or I have more than you. We, collectively, all share in the same thing. It's not a competition. And the rest of the verses, verse 11 and 12, just modify that statement and explain what it is, what it is for, and how is it possible anyway. Anyway. Right at the end of verse number 10, it says, in him. Now, I know some translations, uh, the New American Standard, the King James, does it that way. But others put, in him, in the beginning of the next verse, verse number 11. But folks, that's key to the whole passage. That in him is not just tack on words because Paul had extra ink. And he thought, well, I better keep using this word. It sounds good. It wasn't that way at all. It's really the key to our Christian life, do you know? Everything we are, everything we do is because of Him. Are you aware of that? It's in Him. And it's about Him. It's <laughs> not about us. Too often in our Christian life, we get kind of wrapped up in ourselves and we forget that this is all about Him. In Him. And then here's what the Greek does. It's rather interesting. In him, in whom... I mean, you take that one preposition, in him, and then it adds a relative pronoun, in whom. It almost doubles it. Like, in him, in whom... I mean, it's just pointing as hard as it can at him. In whom, we have been assigned a portion. Just doubling the fact that it's his doing. It's not ours. It's not ours. If I could say that more than any other word in our whole study, that's so intentional. This is not what we have done. It's in Him. It's in Him. And why does the Lord have to keep insisting on that in this passage? Is it because we forget that too easily? That He has to keep saying it, and saying it, and saying it? How is it possible that you and me... He'd have a portion in this. How? It says it was predestined. Do you see that word in your text? (laughs) Some people see that word and they go, that's kind of a scary word. Verse number five said it too. Verse number five, when we were back there, it says, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. It's not a bad word, folks. Prediction means, in this way of saying it, it's God's way of mapping out your horizon. It's God's way of mapping out your horizon. He does this according to His kind intention, verse 5 said. In this passage, it says according to His purpose. He's predestined this according to his purpose, according to his will. And maybe you struggle with the words, his will. Maybe you struggle with that. As if somehow that's a terrible idea. As if somehow we think that our will is better suited for what we want and what we need. I would much rather trade my will for his any day of the day. Any day. I'd rather have what He wants for me than what I want for me. His will is always good. His will is always a loving thing. His will is always the best. His will will always bring glory to our Savior. Can you say that of your will? I bet you can't. See, I'm betting again. I didn't bet yesterday. I'm not betting now. You struggle with the idea of God's will? You ever struggle with that? If you do, folks, I have to warn you. You're going to have a tough time with the rest of this passage. (laughs) Because it says that this inheritance, this inheritance which he predestined what it is for, what it is, in verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. There's a purpose in what he is doing. It's a purpose that has been in operation here all along. This word prothesis, P-R-O-T-H-E-S-I-S, It's a setting forth, is what it means. But I want to give you the picture of what it looks like. It's what they did when they went into the tabernacle, or the temple, the priest did, when they were carrying a basket of freshly baked bread. And they'd go up to the table of showbread, and they'd take all the bread off of there that's been sitting there for a little while, and it's old and stale, and and they go and eat it. Right, must be croutons or something. But then they take the new, and then they arrange it on that table. Do you think they just dump the basket and run? They set it. They set it on that table. And that's the word you're looking at here. It's set up in a certain way. I could use this illustration. Sometimes when we're having special occasion or guests over, my wife sets a beautiful table. When she would get out all those pretty plates and cups and bowls and centerpieces, sometimes she even does it the night before. And she sets up and arranges that table in such a beautiful and inviting manner. No one comes to that table disappointed in what it looks like. Because it's that kind of a look. It's detailed in the arrangements. In a similar fashion and so much bigger. When you step into glory, I don't think you're going to say... Oh, man, am I disappointed. I don't think you will. Because what we know is that God prepares things beforehand. That's the nature of the word here. When it talks about your inheritance, He's planned this out. He's purposed it already. Long before, brace yourself, long before you even knew Christ, He planned this out. You say, really? Oh, yeah. It speaks of that in this passage. Long before you were even saved. Oh, you want to go even bigger? Long before you even existed. What did it say back in Ephesians 1-4? Same passage. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. <laughs> Unless you're willing to admit you're older than the earth. You weren't there. I wasn't there. But God was already planning. He was already purposing. He had already set these things together. You know what I love about that? This whole picture, especially of this inheritance, it's not an afterthought for God. It's not some sort of surprise on His side that, Oh no, (laughs) I wasn't expecting you. He's not in a rush job to get it ready because he sees you coming down the road. He's not carelessly throwing together things because suddenly you're about to enter into glory. Putting all the facts together, this inheritance we're studying right now, haven't even told you what it is yet. But what it is so far is carefully laid out. It's already allotted. It's not waiting for adjustments. It's not waiting for rearrangements. It's not anchored to surprises. I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in all that. I find great comfort in all that. I love the fact that my Heavenly Father has thought this all through. He's thought so much of you and so much of me. Isn't it wonderful to be called a child of God? Look at what He's done. All of these things, and you say, well, I don't even know what it is yet. What is it? It says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. And notice this phrase, who works all things after the counsel of his will. It gets bigger and bigger. What is this? This is how God works. He thinks. He plans. It's called the volition of his choice. That means he's determined something, he's decided it, he has set the plans for it, and it has a specific purpose. No details are unthought. Nothing is overlooked. When God created the whole universe, and created a planet Earth, and he said, I'm going to put people on this planet Earth, and they're going to live on this Earth, because I've designed it for them. What if he put them all on there and then said, oops, I forgot oxygen? You say, well, he didn't forget that, did he? What what if he forgot food? No, he didn't forget that either. Did he come through with a pretty detailed plan for the planet Earth? Oh my, study it sometimes. And be impressed with God down to the smallest of atoms. Put together to make it work. Amazing to me. And you think he's going to do less about you and your eternal future? This is the same God who's done everything like that. And now he's thought of you. And he works at all things after the counsel of his will. No details are unthought. Nothing is overlooked here. Carefully and precisely orchestrating and carrying it out. Nothing missing. All of this is from his voluntary, gracious, and even abundant provisions. This is amazing. Why would he look at us and say, I want that for them? It's his will. You see that little word, his? Don't minimize that word. It's His will. It's His will. And I hope you realize this is building up to something. It's building up to something. Because God has done this work. And He has brought it all ultimately to pass for a reason. He has invested so much in that title you wear as heir. He has a grand purpose. A grand purpose. And now suddenly you're going to find out what it is. And folks, it's not a mansion. Did I disappoint you now? You say, oh, it's got to be better. What is it? What is it that we're looking at? Here it is. Verse 12. This is it. To the end, here's our goal. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. So, What? would be to the praise of His glory. We who have put our faith in Christ has an end goal. You want to know what it is? To always and continually exist for the purpose of praising His glory. Shift your focus. You've got to, to wrap your mind around this. Get off the mansion and get your mind on Christ. Get your mind on Christ. He is what eternity is all about. He is the centerpiece of our praise. Remember Romans 8? If children, then we're heirs also. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. I want to give you a picture. I think this can help. A concept of something that's really too big for us. Scripture describes the church as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5. Now you got an image in your mind, right? A bride. It speaks of a time when the bride is presented before Christ without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but pure and complete and holy and beautiful. It speaks of the fact that wherever he goes, the bride, the church, goes with him. It speaks of the fact that the bride is seated beside him in glory. Now, in this real simple picture the bride is sharing with him all the things that he is receiving. The things of praise and the things of glory. The bride is also participating in that giving of praise and glory. Picture it for a minute this way. I don't know if you watched the coronation yesterday. Rather interesting to watch. You might have to wait 70 more years. Maybe not, but it's been 70 years, so it's the last one. It's always really impressive to see. Here is the king going through all the things to be crowned king and to be declared king, and everyone giving honor to their king and all this stuff. And here is his wife. She's part of the reception of all those things, isn't she? She sits in the chair beside him. She wears a crown on her head, too. Who's the king? He is. And she's sitting there in the glory of the moment. Here's something I want you to see. The scene is where a husband is getting a reward or a plaque or something for sacrificial service. The wife is standing beside him and is just bursting with pride and with joy because of something her husband has done. Multiply that by Super big numbers, and you might get a feel for what it's going to be like when we sit beside our Savior and He gets the praise. Guess who participates in that? Us. You want it bigger than that? I can't imagine anything bigger than that. That's the inheritance. Folks, can you see it? Our inheritance is Christ, not a building, not a trumpet. Not a harp, not a cloud. It's Christ. That's what we're going to receive. It's our inheritance. It's part of what the portion is that God has planned for us. Forever praising our Savior. What else would you want to do? Heaven is not about me. It's about Him. It's about Him. Praising the Lord Folks, that's not easy to do in our world, is it? We have so many distractions, so many limitations. We think about the day when it's all taken away and forever we will have the joy of praising the One who made it all possible for us to share eternity with Him. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know Him? All that I'm sharing with you this morning comes back to a simple thing that Jesus said. He said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me." I didn't offer you heaven today. I offer you Jesus, because that's what it's all about. I'm not aiming to try figure out how great heaven's going to be for me. I just want to be with my Savior. Do you have a Savior too? Is He the one that you're living for? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Have you received Him? Do you believe Him? These are His words, not mine. I didn't write these things. But it does say this. To them who have received Him, He gives the right to be called children of God. Do you know Him? I'm going to appeal to you today in this way, to investigate what or who you have faith in. You know what I mean by what? What is your hope beyond this life? If you're setting your hope just on the things you're going to get, then I don't think you've you've studied the passage well. It's not about what we get, it's what we get to share because we're with Christ. That's our inheritance. It's Jesus. Jesus. And I hope you know him today. But if you need to talk about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. Or maybe you could grab somebody close to you and say, Explain this better to me. What what's this mean to know Jesus? that's the centerpiece of it all. That's our Savior. That's what we live for. And I can't wait to spend eternity praising Him. How about you? How about you? Are you coming too? Are you coming too? Heavenly Father, you know everyone in this room. Whether or not they know Jesus or whether they don't. This is a very important question. That's raised to our hearts today. And I pray every single one of us will examine this carefully. What is our hope in? If we're just hoping for a building, if we're just hoping for uh, something that we receive as a prize, heaven itself, a prize for being good or, or being faithful or such like that, Lord, redirect our focus today, not on the place, but on the person. On Jesus himself. The one who made all this possible in the first place. And through him we have everything. And apart from him we can do nothing. Change our focus. And even as believers, we can get caught up in things that are peripheral. And we forget what the main point is. Christ in us is the hope of glory. I pray, Lord, you help us keep our focus on this. Lord, if somebody here today needs to know Jesus as Savior, draw them to yourself. You're the only one who can save them. If they need to talk to us, make us willing, make us ready. But of all things, Lord, work in hearts today and draw us all closer to our Savior, we pray. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.